0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Summer Podcast. This is episode 45. Today I will be talking about the murders of Adrian Insagna and Leslie Mazera. When this episode was released, it'll be Monday, November 1st, but I wanted to do a Halloween-themed episode. My sources for this episode are Forensic Files, Season 12, Episode 5, titled Good As Gold, Here's the Twist.com, Forensic Files Now blog, Medium.com abcnews.go.com, cbsnews.com, and napavalleyregister.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in the show notes. Two young women were brutally murdered on Halloween, but the killer left behind his DNA, and a groundbreaking new test identified his eye color, his hair, and even the color of his skin. But knowing what he looked like was one thing finding him was nothing. Halloween night, 2004. After a night of passing out candy, three roommates living in Napa, California, Lauren Minza, Adrian Insagna, and Leslie Mazzara all went to bed around midnight. Around 2 a.m., Lauren woke up to the sound of her dog growling. She then heard screams, screams she described as blood curdling, coming from the bedrooms of her roommates. As she climbed out of bed, she hid and saw a man running down the stairs, but she couldn't see his face. Adrian and Leslie had been stabbed repeatedly. Leslie was found face down, and Adrian was still alive, but Ava's obviously bleeding heavily. Lauren was in shock and had even slipped in her roommate's blood. She called 911. Now, before I get further into the case, I'm going to talk about all three women who were involved. Leslie was a former beauty queen from South Carolina, and at the time of her death, she was a tour guide for the Nibom Coppola Winery. Adrian worked as a civil engineer for the Napa Sanitation District, and the sole survivor, Lauren, worked as a volleyball coach. Now back to the horrific crime. When the police arrived, they found numerous bloodstains in the home. Leslie had been attacked first, it had woken Adrian up. She got out of bed to turn the light on, and that's when she was attacked. Adrian fought back. Her eyeglasses had been broken in the struggle. The blood trail led to the front window. Plastic zip ties were found on the ground. The police later said that the killer had dropped them as he crawled in or out of the home. There was blood found on the outside of the home. Police found three cigarette butts outside, two in the front yard, one in the back. They were collected as well as blood. Actually, about 71 samples in total were collected. The next morning, the police talked to Lauren as news spread about the crime. Lauren told the police that she didn't know who would have done it and that nothing had been taken from the home. The police wondered if Leslie was the intended target or if she was attacked first because her bedroom was the closest to the stairs. When the police went through her phone records, they discovered that she had been being harassed by the father of her ex-boyfriend. He became infatuated with her. He continued calling her after she moved to Napa and had actually called her on the night of the murders. However, he and his son had been in South Carolina and they were ruled out. Another suspect was a handyman that had done some work on the day of the murders. However, he too was reeled out quickly. More than 200 suspects were interviewed, but it didn't lead to anything. A break in the case came when the police found DNA from the killer on the cigarettes and from inside the home. The DNA was tested by Dr. Tony Ferdakis. He had a new method of DNA testing that would tell the police what the killer might look like. His testing suggested that the killer was male of northwestern European descent, who had most likely had light-colored hair and either blue or green eyes. The cigarettes found also had a unique pattern on them. The cigarettes were Camel Turkish Gold, a brand that at the time hadn't been out for that long. Not every store carried them either, and when the police asked the different stores if they sold a lot of cartons, they all said no. The police asked Lauren if she knew anyone who smoked Camel Turkish Gold. She said yes, Eric Koppel, but she didn't think that he was involved. Eric was well-known to all three women, but mostly to Adrian. Eric had been dating and later married her good friend, Lily Prodhume. At the time of the murders, Eric and Lily weren't on good terms, but they married just months afterwards. A $10,000 reward was released for any information. After the information about the DNA testing hit the news, Eric walked into the police station and confessed. His DNA was a match to the DNA from inside the home on the band that wrapped the zip ties and on the cigarettes. Eric wouldn't tell the police why he killed Leslie and Adrian or where the murder weapon was. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. It was eventually revealed that Eric blamed Adrian for his breakup with Lily. Adrian must have seen red flags that Lily didn't and she told her friend that she could do better. On the night of the murders, Eric went to a Halloween party where he saw Lily. They argued, according to witnesses, and Lily didn't want anything to do with him, so he got drunk and went to Adrian's to confront her. Eric then watched the house for a bit, smoked a few cigarettes, and went inside through the window, using a knife to pry it open. He dropped the zip ties, went to Leslie's bedroom because it was closest, killed her, and then killed Adrian. During the struggle with Adrian, Eric cut his hand and left behind his DNA as he crawled back out the window. Eric told the police that he had burned the clothes that he wore that night. The day after the murders, Eric consoled Lily about the death of her friend, unbeknownst to her that he committed. She had never suspected him or maybe didn't want to think that he would have anything to do with it. I a, a reckoning with myself and really understood that Adrian was the target and somebody really wanted my child dead. And then I thought how stupid was I? Of course, Adrian was the target. Of course, we all know it's someone in the inner circle. Eric and Lily eventually got married, even inviting Adrian's mom and sister to the wedding. In December 2006, Eric Koppel pleaded guilty to two counts of first degree murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. He described himself as a broken man and said he had rage inside him due to his relationship falling apart and the death of his grandfather. He also said he had abused alcohol. Lily said that her husband had a gentle side, and she said that before he told her that he had killed Leslie and Adrian, she said, quote, There is nothing in this world that could make me love you any less. End quote. Lily has since divorced Eric. Lauren said that it was hard for her to wrap her mind around Eric being the killer. She described him as a nice, quiet guy, but he clearly had severe issues. This case is heartbreaking, but there is one positive Lauren survived. It's believed that he didn't know that she lived there or knew that her room was in the basement. Eric seems to have shown remorse, however, he deserves to sit in prison, and hopefully he does think about the lives that he took. It's strange to me that Lily said what she said to him. Like, this man killed your friend, but that's just my personal opinion. Maybe she still doesn't believe he actually did it, but this man left so much damn DNA inside and outside the home. It's obvious that the police have the right person locked up. My book recommendation for this week is Can't Look Away by Carola Lovering. Summary in 2013 23 year old molly diamond is a barista dreaming of becoming a writer one night at a concert in brooklyn she locks eyes with the lead singer jake danner and can't look away molly and jake fall quickly and deeply in love especially after he writes a hit song about her that puts his band on the map nearly a decade later molly has given up writing and is living in flynn cove connecticut with her young daughter and her husband hunter who is decidedly not jake danner their life Looks picture perfect, but but Molly is lonely. She feels out of place with the other women in their wealthy suburb and is struggling to conceive their second child. When Sabrina, a newcomer in town, walks into the yoga studio where Molly teaches and confesses her own fertility struggles, Molly believes she's finally found a friend. But Sabrina has her own reasons for moving to Flynn Cove and befriending Molly. And as Sabrina's secrets are slowly unspooled, her connection to Molly becomes clearer, as do secrets of Molly's own, which she's worked hard to keep buried. Meanwhile, a new version of Jake's hit song is on the radio, forcing Molly to confront her past and ask the ultimate questions What happens when life turns out nothing like we thought it would, and when we were young and dreaming big? Does growing up mean choosing with your head rather than your heart, and do we ever truly get out of our first love? Oh, sorry, truly get over our first love. Review I really enjoyed this book. I requested to read it on NetGalley and couldn't put it down. It's a mix of romance and mystery and thriller. There are also shifting timelines, which I love, as long as I can follow it. The characters are also really well written, and I love the dynamic between them. There are many twists and turns that are all answered by the end of the book. I give it an 8 out of 10. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode, and I hope everyone had a safe Halloween. Now we can get ready for Thanksgiving. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram, buy me a coffee, leave me a rating or review. Also, if you have a case or topic you want me to cover, please DM or email me. I will be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere. I'll see you guys next week.